0: And uh, perhaps you do that or you look at your digital devices and read and see what's going on. Now, not every story is of equal interest. Uh, If there's a story about a bombing or kidnapping or something, I'm more apt to read that than if there's one that says local knitting club to meet. Now, some of you knit and you would read that one first because that's your interest, but that's the way it goes. So we all have our own criteria for judging which story merits our time. But sometimes the headlines are more interesting than the story. I I found just a few in the last few weeks. One said, red tape holds up new bridge. Now, that's mighty strong tape. And I'm not going to try to drive across that bridge. (laughs) Another one said, local high school dropouts cut in half. Now, that seemed like rather drastic punishment for dropping out of school, but uh, I guess each school board can do their own thing. Another one, miners refuse to work after death. Now I've always heard that mining companies were really hard on their employees, but I didn't know they were that hard. But I'm glad that they are now refusing to work after death. Another interesting one said, Typhoon rips through cemetery, hundreds found dead. I don't know, that didn't seem too surprising to me, but uh, at any rate, it made headlines. And this one came from you now 20 years ago, I suppose, when uh, Saddam Hussein was still in charge of uh, Iraq. The headline read, Iraqi Head Seeks Arms. I would think the head would seek the whole body, but if you want just head and arms, I guess that's up to you. Uh, that's just Kind of the strange things that people say in our headlines. But I was thinking of some of the headlines that might have been printed had they had newspaper in Jesus' day. Dead man walks out of grave. Blind man sees. Lame man runs. And Maybe the most interesting would have been, vineyard owners in terror. Man discovered way to turn water into wine. If you owned a vineyard, that would be pretty scary, wouldn't it? Anyway, I'm not sure what headlines were in Jesus' day, but I know that uh, they would have been exciting to read. And I'm sure all of you have heard of the term oxymoron. It's a Greek word that means pointedly foolish. You make an oxymoron when you put words together that are complete opposites. They contradict each other, like... She was clearly confused. Or a parent saying to its child, just act naturally. Well, if it's natural, then it's not acting, is it? Uh, Act naturally. Or you've perhaps heard someone say, well, it was an open secret. Well, then it's not really a secret. And my favorite is when you go into a restaurant and you see on the menu jumbo shrimp. Think about it for a second there. What's even more confusing perhaps than an oxymoron, two words is an oxymoron statement. Andy Warhol was famous for his statement, you must know that I am a deeply superficial person. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Sam Goldwyn, a famous movie producer from the early 20th century, once said, give me a smart idiot over a stupid genius every day and I'll make a better movie. (laughs) Okay. And he also said to his staff, gentlemen, I want you to know that I am not always right. However, I am never wrong. And uh, Dolly Parton is famous for having said, you'd be surprised how much it costs to look this cheap oxymorons, can't go both ways. But one of my favorites is the silence was deafening. You ever heard someone say that? The silence was deafening. Well, as you read through the stories of Jesus' life, I think there probably were times when he would have been thrilled to have that silence that was deafening because he was always surrounded by noise. Throughout much of his ministry, he has large crowds following him. And if you've ever tried to shush a large crowd, you know it's nearly impossible. Also, notice how many people in the Bible, Jesus, Bible stories, yell for Jesus' attention. You know, if you want to get a lot of attention, there's no faster way than making a lot of noise. Uh, you hear a lot of noise; we always look to see what's causing the noise. But so many people who yelled for Jesus' attention were also people who were standing on the margins of society, the sick, the demon-possessed, the sinners, the rejects. The thought was on that day, let's keep these people at the margins of society. Let's keep them out of our social circles. Let's not allow them into the synagogue. That's how it was in Jesus' day, and I think it's very much the same today. There are some people that we keep out of our social circus, and I'm not saying we should allow everybody to be in our social circus circle because, well, we're known by the company we keep, (laughs) or birds of a feather flock together, you know, the old sayings, but we shouldn't reject them. I'll have to tell you a bad thing about me. There's probably a lot of them. My wife could tell you more. But this morning I came in, there was somebody sitting in the second row, and I thought, I don't know who that is, but he's in Linda's place. I thought, hey, gee, <laughs> what are you doing? There's somebody new here. You should be glad he's here. So I, but have you ever found yourself thinking that? Why is that person doing that? That doesn't meet our mold. That doesn't feed our quota. That doesn't feed our goal. It doesn't meet who we are. And we tend to maybe reject them. I, uh, I owe a lot to the Salvation Army, and I, I wouldn't want to tell a bad story about it, but I've got to tell you one that has bothered me since I was a student at the school way back in 1965. The territorial commander, who's somewhat, I suppose relative to a general superintendent, he was in charge of the entire Salvation Army operations in the northern, North Midwest, 11 states, He came to speak to us, and he told us a story that just really upset me, and I don't know if it upset anybody else because we never talked about it, but he had at his command the entire forces of the Salvation Army in 11 states. And he told us that the day before, on Saturday, he and his wife had gone to the office, and there was nobody else in the building. And when they came out in the early evening, it was mid-October, if you've ever been in Chicago in mid-October, you know that it's windy and it's cold, and the wind comes blowing off Lake Michigan and makes it even colder. He said, when he came out, there was a lady sitting by the door, and she said, Sir, I came here because said the, the Salvation Army, and I knew you could help me. And he said, I had to say to her, I'm sorry, I can't help you. He said, what could I do? And he said, so my wife and I got in our car, and on the way home, we said isn't that terrible that she came to the salvation army and there was nobody there to help her i thought you were there i mean you had at your command probably 300 salvation army officers pastors and and i don't know how many hundreds of members and and churches all over the city and it do you mean there was nobody there to help her? And then he said, I don't want to ever hear any of you when you get to your first appointments say to anybody, there's nothing I can do. He said, that's a terrible thing to say. Don't ever say it. I thought, Why did you say it? No, there was no organized way for him to help her. But he could have said, let's go back inside where it's warm and I'll call someone who can help you. I think he'd been so far removed from helping people for so long that he'd forgotten that all it takes is a little phone call. I don't know. That upset me terribly. And every once in a while, I think about that. And when everyone, anyone came into my office and said, I need help, that story would pop in my mind. And I think, I'm not going to say there's nothing I could do to help you. I'm going to find something. May not be what they ask for, but I'm going to find something. But I think so often we look at people and realize they need help, and we say, boy, I wish there was something I could do, but there's nothing I can do to help you. And that's the way it was in Jesus' day. The religious people of this day would walk by the lepers, the blind, the lame, and say, oh, you know, you're really blocking the road there. Can you move? (laughs) Or... You're bumping into people, sit down, you're blind, you can't see. Their hearts were not where they should be. And it's not the way it should be in our lives today. Well, in Jesus' day, that's the way it was. And I'm afraid in our society, it's that way too. But when when society has decided that you should be invisible, that you shouldn't have a voice, then you are left with two choices, disappear, or get really loud. So that's the strategy of the group of lepers used in our Bible story tonight. And uh, we'll see how it turned out for them. If you have your Bibles, we're going to look at Luke chapter 17, beginning with verse 11. Luke chapter 17. Luke 17, beginning with verse 11. Now on his way to Jerusalem... Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. I'll stop there for just a moment. Luke began this story in a very specific way and for a very specific reason. The people hearing this story in Jesus' day would have been surprised to hear that Jesus took this route. <clears throat> Jesus grew up in Nazareth, which was around Galilee. It was familiar territory to him. It was his comfort zone. Perhaps we'd say it was his stomping grounds. And this phrase originally referred to a place where herds of animals typically gathered, and we still use it today, I think. Somebody says, it's my stomping grounds. It means where I'm familiar, where I'm comfortable, the things I'm used to. Well, most of Jesus' ministry took place in the region of Galilee, but sometimes Jesus went rogue. At least in the eyes of the religious establishment, he went rogue. The animosity between Jesus and the Jews was often caused because he did that which was not acceptable to their society. And the Samaritans were a part of that. You probably know the history, but in case someone doesn't, 700 years before Jesus' birth the Assyrians conquered the Jewish city of Samaria. And marriage between the pagan Assyrians and the Samaritan Jews led to changes in the way that the Samaritans practiced their faith. And the Jews considered the Samaritans to be impure heretics, sinners to be avoided at all costs. In Jesus' day, devout Jews avoided Samaria, walking hundreds of miles, or at least dozens of miles out of their way to go around the city, so they didn't have to have any contact with the Samaritans. Dr. Redford, a pastor and former president of the Baptist University, tells about visiting a poor rundown neighborhood in St. Louis. Said as he walked down the streets, he met a dejected looking man standing on a street corner and he struck up a conversation with the man and began telling him about the peace and the hope he had found in Jesus. The man responded, Mister, nobody with peace and hope ever comes to this part of the town. I don't even think Jesus would come here. Which of course is exactly wrong. Jesus did go there. He went exactly to the people and the places that everyone else avoided because Jesus loves those whom the world rejects. That's the first insight I want us to get from tonight's lesson. He loves those who are at the margins of society. Jesus' first public sermon in his hometown synagogue came from the writings of Isaiah and he said this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The Spirit of the Lord is now upon me. Jesus never hit his agenda. He couldn't have cared less what the religious establishment said or what would make him popular with the crowds. He cared about bringing God's love to everyone, and he didn't wait for anyone to come to him. Jesus went outside his stomping grounds into the bad neighborhoods to find the people who needed to see that love in the flesh. Jesus revealed to us the very heart of God. God loves those whom the world rejects. The folks standing on the margins of society, the sick, the invisible, the sinners. Jesus didn't just see them, he went looking for them. Which tells me that those ten lepers didn't have to yell at Jesus. They didn't have to make a commotion, and neither do we. Isn't it a amazing blessing that he already knows our needs you remember the story of Elijah on the uh, mountain and the pagan priests shouting and cutting themselves and dancing and making all kinds of commotion to get their God's attention and they didn't get it of course because their gods were not in existence and all Elijah had to say was God send down the fire We don't have to shout and scream and holler. God knows our needs. Well, the Bible passage continues in verse 12. As he was going into the village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, go show yourself to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. And this brings brings us to a second insight we get from this passage. Jesus, who is God in the flesh, loves to show mercy to those who are hurting. The word translated pity in verse 12, a better translation for it would be mercy or compassion. There are seven instances in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, in which people came to Jesus and asked for mercy. And out of those seven times, how many times do you think he answered them? Somebody take a guess. Seven. Seven. seven, yeah, right. That was an easy one, was it? No trick question. Seven out of seven, Jesus responded. He never turned them away. That's the whole reason he was walking along the border between Galilee and Samaria. He knew that someone there needed mercy, and the healer goes where people are hurting. In the play, Green Pastures, uh, which won a Pulitzer Prize in 1930, it was a very groundbreaking play, particularly because it was the first Broadway play to include an all black cast. But there's a scene in the play where God disguises himself as a poor country preacher and walks among God's people on the earth. God meets a man who begins telling him about how he worships the Lord God of Hosea. Hosea, if you recall, was the Old Testament prophet who preached a message of mercy and sacrificial love. God called Hosea to marry Gomer, an unfaithful woman, who left Hosea and ended up uh, being sold into servitude at the local marketplace. And God commands Hosea to buy her out of servitude and restore her as his wife. And in this way, Hosea serves as a witness to the mercy, the sacrificial love, the restoration of God. Go oh, back to the story of uh, Green Pastures. The Lord asks this uh, man he meets, well, what kind of God is this God of Hosea? The man answers, well, he's a God of mercy. Well, where did Hosea learn that? And the man answers, "Well, he learned that God's the God of mercy, the same way anyone else learns it, through suffering. Isn't that true? When we're going through the rough times, we know that God is the God of mercy. When things aren't going the way we think we should, we know that God is the God of compassion. And I, I don't think I'm wrong in saying if we never suffered, if we never hurt, If we never had any disappointments, we would never know the full love of God. Until you've suffered, until you've been cut off from the life and hope you wanted to have, you cannot appreciate the mercy of God. There's only two instances in the Gospels where people hesitated to approach Jesus. We often read of people coming to him, shouting at him, yelling at him, trying to get his attention. In two cases, that wasn't the case. The woman who was hemorrhaging blood, who simply reached out to touch the border of Jesus' robe. And Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector who was despised by the Jewish believers. In the first case, Jesus saw the woman, spoke to her, and healed her. In the second instance, Jesus approached Zacchaeus and invited him over for lunch or invited himself over for lunch. In both cases, Jesus approached them and offered them mercy, even when they didn't ask for it. They may not have even known it was available. They may not have known that Jesus could do anything for them, but Jesus touched them. God in the flesh loves to show mercy to those who are hurting. And the final insight we get from today's story the ultimate goal of Jesus' mercy is our salvation. As the 10 lepers were on their way to this, see the priests, they discovered that they had been healed. The end of the story, starting with verse 15. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back. Praising God in a loud voice, he threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. But in verse 14, as the ten lepers were on their way to see the priest, they were cleansed of their leprosy. In verse 15, the one leper who returned did so because he saw that he had been healed or cured but in verse 19 when that one Samaritan leper returned with loud praises and threw himself at Jesus feet Jesus used a very different Greek word to describe his condition when Jesus says rise and go your faith has made you well that verb phrase made you well could better have been translated saved or delivered rise and go your faith has saved you rise and go your faith has delivered you Yes, Jesus' mercy can cleanse us, it can even heal us, but ultimately Jesus' mercy is intended to save us, to deliver us, to make us whole. Author Philip Yancey tells of visiting his close friend, Drs. Paul and Margaret Brand. They were medical missionaries to uh, India who worked specifically with the lepers in India. He says, while he was there, he met a man named Saddam who had suffered serious damage from, his, uh, from leprosy to his hands and his feet. Now, after some work with the doctor's brand, he was finally able to use his damaged limbs and to get a job and to support himself. But as Philip Yancey was talking to Sedan, he said, uh, Sedan said, Dr. Brand was the first doctor would even come near me, let alone touch my feet. He was the first doctor who told me there was hope. He said, and I'm so very glad. He said, I know you will think this sounds ridiculous, but I'm so very glad I had leprosy. For had I not had leprosy, I would have never come to Dr. Brand and Dr. Mary. Had I not had leprosy, I would have gone living my life as everybody else around here, serving Hindu gods, trying to work hard to raise myself up to the next caste level. But when I met them and he touched my feet, I thought, this man is different. And I asked him why, and he said, because I know Jesus. And I asked him to introduce me to Jesus, and that changed my life. Yes, Jesus heals. Jesus cleanses but most of all, and we're all grateful for this, he wants to save. And I don't know what more he could possibly do for us than to save our souls from sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I ask you to stand.